The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. Well, folks, we're in for a real treat this morning as uh, the seniors share with us how the Holy Spirit's prepared their hearts for the passages that we're looking at in the scriptures today. And the first scripture that we're going to be looking at comes from Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me just for a moment, just to read this together, and then we'll enter into our time of study of the word together. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 14, will you read with me? Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. This from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so thankful for the opportunity us seniors have this morning to lead y'all. So thank you for giving us that. My name is Leah Sarter, and I'm going to start us off in Romans 8:12, And then I'm going to hand it off to Carly Bieber and Abby Newton and Janelle Reese. Again, we're really excited to be here. So thank you for believing in us and supporting us. If, you, if you've been at Sanctuary the past few weeks, we've been journeying through Romans 8. And the past two weeks, we focused on verses 1 through 11. And in just those few verses, the word sin, sinful nature, and sinner is mentioned 10 times. And so is the word spirit. So we know that sin and spirit, these are major themes in Romans 8. And so this morning, I want us to continue to talk about them and understand what God desires of us. The word sin in Greek is hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. It is used as an archery term for when an archer aims and releases his bow, but fails to accomplish his purpose, to hit his desired mark. Similarly, sin is produced in us when we fail to accomplish our sole purpose to honor God. Sin is when we as creation miss the mark, when we miss out on our preordained purpose, which is to honor our creator. The earliest definition I learned for sin was anything that you think, say, or do that dishonors God. And I love that definition. I think it's so simple. I still use it a lot today. But I think sin is far more ingrained in us than we tend to believe and that we initially recognize. Sin is not only limited to our thoughts 
in our words, in our actions, but sin can also be what we do not say or we do not do. Sin can be our failure to obey God, either corporately as a church or individually. Romans 8.12 says, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. This morning, I think we have two options. We have the option to read the word of God and for it to become white noise. We have the option to just pass by as if this is another Sunday and for us to just be like, well, that was good. It sounds good. Where we have the opportunity to humble ourselves. But if you and I neglect to humble ourselves this morning, and if we choose that we're not desperate sinners in need of a savior, then we're only fooling ourselves. Peter Kreft explains, saints agree they are sinners, only sinners think they are saints. If you and I live our lives thinking that we're saints, or perhaps more of a saint than our neighbor, then we're the greatest of sinners. We're never going to say that in public, we're never going to profess that, but if we believe that in the, at the core of our being, then we're incredibly far from the heart of God. It's only when we join in with Paul's words found in 1 Timothy 1.15, I am a sinner, the greatest of them all. It's only when we join in with those words and that we believe them for ourselves that we can grow in the spirit. It's only when we humble ourselves and acknowledge our shortcomings and our failures to live righteously before God that the things of heaven can grow within us. It's essential that we don't just hear that, but we believe it for ourselves. That our sanctification and our purification is dependent on the depth of our humility. The deeper our humility, the deeper we can grow in Christ-likeness. And so if we actually believe that about humility, then our understanding of repentance is also going to be reshaped. We've got to recognize that our strength as a Christian, it's not determined by how little we need to repent, but it's found in how quick we are to humble ourselves and run to our Father. So with that in mind, I want us to return to Romans 8:12. Dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. So I ask you to consider, what does your sinful nature urge you to do? All of our answers are going to look a little bit different, but I want to discuss four sinful urges that I think have become so deceptive and so overlooked in the church. The first one is pride. I've seen pride cause Christians to miss the mark, and I've seen pride cause my own faith and dependence and love for God to miss the mark. Pride is the act of shifting confidence from God to ourselves. Pride is the thought that we're anything more than a vessel. It's the thought that we're anything more than a humble servant of God. And pride is the thought that I'm more to the kingdom of God than those around me. I've personally found pride to become a really deadly sin because it's one of the most deceptive sins. Comparatively, it doesn't look as dangerous or as bad or as sinful as adultery or murder or drunkenness. 
But I believe that if we really understand what sin is, man, anything that draws us away from God, it's deadly and it's dangerous to our faith. Second, I've seen envy cause Christians to miss the mark. And I've seen envy in my own life cause my faith and my dependence and my love for God to miss the mark. The definition of envy is a desire to qual- of a quality, possession, or attribute belonging to someone else. Envy can be physical. I think that's the first thing we think about. We think, okay, I'm envious of someone's possessions or their car or the money or the clothes or the house. But I think the truth is that envy is incredibly spiritual. We can be envious of someone's spiritual gifts or envious of their accomplishments or the opportunities they've been given or the influence and the platform they have. Or maybe their personality of how they can connect and bless someone else in a way that maybe you and I can't. I think envy is normalized in our society, but anyone who thinks envy is harmless has forgotten Genesis 4. Human history's first murder was a byproduct of envy. Cain murdered Abel because he was envious of his spiritual blessing. If envy is strong enough to influence a man to kill his brother, then it's dangerous enough to endanger our faith. Third, I've seen a lust cause Christians to miss the mark, and I've seen a lust cause my faith and dependence and love for God to miss the mark. Matthew 5, 8 says, if you look lustfully, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. I'm not sure how much clearer that could be, right? Lustful thoughts. They're just as sinful as lustful actions. And if that's true, then I think the implications are that maybe we're more guilty of that sin than we initially believe or think. Bodie Bachman says, The wisest man in the Bible fell into sexual sin. The strongest man in the Bible fell into sexual sin. And the godliest man in the Bible fell into sexual sin. For me to think that I'm above falling into this sin is for me to think that I'm wiser than Solomon, stronger than Samson, and godlier than King David. I wonder what it would look like if we let that doctrine reshape the way that we understood that sin. Fourth, I've seen apathy cause Christians to miss the mark. And I've seen apathy in my own life cause my faith and my dependence and my love for God to miss the mark. Apathy is a lack of interest, care, or concern for God, the kingdom of God, or the people of God. Our Christian culture has decided that obedience to God is optional and compromise is acceptable. And so with that being said, I think apathy has gripped the church and it's gripped our nation. I hope this morning that you can identify in what ways your sinful nature urges you to sin and miss the mark. Maybe it looks like those ways, or maybe it looks a little bit different. Maybe your sinful nature urges you to neglect studying scripture, or neglect community, or neglect communion with the Father in prayer. Or maybe if we take it a step farther... Maybe your sinful nature has convinced you to trade the things that you once knew and believed were true for lies. 
Maybe you've been convinced that you can trade what you once believed about God's sovereignty and God's power and God's love and God's provision in your life, and you've swapped them out for things that might appear to be true. But if you open up the word of God, you recognize their lies. So I ask you to examine, where have you, for, where have you given the enemy a seat at your table and lived according to your sinful nature? And where have you missed the mark? Our sinful nature is so heavily ingrained in us. John Piper has a quote of sin and a definition of it. He says, sin is the glory of God, not honored. The holiness of God, not reverenced. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. And the person of God, not loved. That is sin. We fall short in every way and in every day. But I want us to recognize that the mark of a true Christian, it's not that they do not sin, but it's that they are at war with their sin all the time. The question isn't, have you missed the mark? Because you've missed the mark and I've missed the mark. The question is, what will we do because we have missed the mark? Instead of continuing in our sinful nature and nourishing pride and lust and apathy and idolatry, I invite us to believe in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus in such a way that we're compelled to turn from our sinful ways and choose a life in the Spirit. Let's turn our attention to Romans 12.2 as we continue. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thank you. Good morning. Hello, everybody. It's crazy to have the opportunity to be up here today. I grew up at Sanctuary, and I am just so honored to be up here. Um, when Sanctuary first started, there wasn't any childcare, so I have very vivid memories of taking naps on the pew during service, but I've come a long way since then. I decided to follow Jesus in the third grade classroom up there. I got baptized over there, and I learned to drive in the parking lot. <laughs> so thank you guys for being a crazy, beautiful faith family to grow up in. It's an honor to be here. So earlier this year, I was asking the Lord to give me a word to be kind of like our theme for our relationship for the year. And last year's word being faithfulness, I was able to see God's faithfulness and really focus in on that. So this year, when he gave me the word surrender, I was a little bit taken back because I was like, this is different. And so I asked him what he meant by that. And God told me that your life is no longer your own. So to be completely honest, I don't feel equipped to be up here teaching on the surrender of sin since I'm still learning how to do it myself. So far, the Lord has taught me that with my life no longer being my own, my desires, my dreams, my money, and how I thought my life would look, all of those are not my own and all of those are becoming different. That includes the sinful parts and the good parts. I've been constantly asking God questions because I don't know how to give up habits I've had since I was a kid. 
or to surrender the vision I had for my perfect, comfortable Christian life. But I'm learning, and I will always be learning, and so I'm hoping that we can just dig in and learn together. So if you have your Bibles, let's open to Romans 8.13. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. From this verse, and from what Leah just spoke on, we see that sin has no benefit for us. If our lives are our own, and if we do live governed by the flesh, there's no good in it. It literally says we will die if we live according to our flesh and according to our sin. So let's go to Colossians 3, 3 through 8. It says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Since sin has no benefit for us, putting it to death is in our favor. We wouldn't put something to death without a reason behind it, so why does Paul go about this so violently? That's probably because he's seeing what sin does. And I think we've all seen how sin destroys us, how it kills us, leads us further away from God, yet it can be so appealing. Based on what this says, whether I like it or not, since I'm guilty of committing these sins daily, I need to put them to death daily. He must increase, I must decrease, John 3.30. So his way, his desires over my fleshes. Which all sounds great, but how do we do this? <laughs> how do we put to death something that has no physical body to kill and is not visible? We know that sin is a spiritual battle because it's our own deeply rooted sinful nature that desires us, that leads us to do the things that we do. So first, if we're going to kill something, that means there's typically these two opposing forces. And we, without these opposing forces, there wouldn't be anything to fight. And so we know for us that's the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. So putting it to death means there's action in it for us. And this sounds extremely difficult because, let's be honest, it is extremely difficult. But he's calling us to do something that's hard, but not to do it alone. Romans 8.13, it says, by the Spirit we put to death. So not by ourselves, not in our own power. Ephesians 6.17 refers to the Spirit as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. For me, it seems easier, more convenient to hold on to my ways, to hold on to the things that I want to do. But by nailing them to the cross, where Jesus became that sin for me, where he fought the battle of sin for me, that brings true freedom. And that leads me to live the life that he calls for me to live, which is a life freedom from sin. And yes, this sounds exhausting because there's an effort in it for us, but is it more exhausting than us being killed by our sin and letting our sin kill us? I want to encourage us with an invitation to put it to death, but also to know that we are fighting something that we already won. When I asked my sweet little brother, Brooks, what he thought about all of this, and I said, how do we put to death the flesh? And he said, the way we kill our flesh 
is realizing it's already dead. So part of the effort in putting to death our flesh is that we need to pick up our cross daily. And the Romans knew back then that the cross meant death. So by us picking up our cross and putting to death our sin daily, not living like the world does in indulgence of sin, that's when we're free to live the life that God calls us to live. It's also a sign to others that we are not living in agreement with our sin, but we're killing it daily. And I had to use my mom as an example, because even if it wasn't Mother's Day, I think she would still come up somehow. But my mom told me one day that my hands need to be empty in order for me to pick up the cross. So we must surrender our own ways before we can take up the way that leads to eternal victory. And I see my mom pick up her cross every day. I walk out of my room, and my mom is in the Word And I brought her Bible with me. I'm sorry I stole it, (laughs) but it's right here. (laughs) And I wanted to show you guys her Bible because it's kind of falling apart, and I love it. I love that it's falling apart. But, like, this whole section is literally out. (laughs) It's not attached anymore. And it kind of looks like she could beat someone up with it, but it is beautiful, and I see her in it every day. And she set such a good example for me. And since sin is a spiritual battle... The word is a weapon we can tangibly hold. So through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word, which are active and alive today, they remind us of the eternal victory that we have from sin through the finished work of the cross. So in honor of Craig, always making us turn to the person sitting next to us and say something, I want y'all to look at the person sitting next to you and tell them that you have victory over sin. You have victory over sin, mom. (laughs) So this morning, we're obviously doing things different. So we're going to do them a little more different. And instead of continuing in the message, we're going to take a time to just invite y'all to sit and receive. To sit in these two questions and this verse in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. To recognize our own sin in our lives and the call to put it to death, but also to be reminded of the eternal victory that we have from sin. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And if indeed we share his sufferings in order that we may also share his glory. Good morning, Sanctuary. So Leah and Carly spoke about sin and what it looks like in our lives and how to surrender it to the Lord. That time of reflection was to give us a space where we could surrender our sin and nail it to the cross. So where is God calling us from here? Let me reread Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The first part is what was already taught. We just put to death the deeds of our flesh. But did you catch the second part? But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That's it. That's what we do. We live. Acts 13, 29 through 30 says, When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. 
but God raised him from the dead. Jesus died for our sins and put the deeds of our flesh to death because he had no misdeeds or fleshly fleshly desires to put to death. So he chose death on a cross for us because he knew we couldn't put them to death on our own. We needed him then and we still need him now. Jesus was put in the ground, but he didn't stay there. What did he do? He rose again, that's right. He rose so we could live in him on earth and eventually live with him in heaven. Romans 8.15 says, For he did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. God redeemed our bodies when we were stuck in slavery and adopted us into his perfect family, just like God did for the Israelites when they were stuck in Egypt. They were slaves to Pharaoh, but God saved them because they were his chosen people. They were chosen before they were enslaved, just like we were chosen before we even got the chance to sin. We are chosen by God and are covered by the blood of the slain lamb. Therefore, there is nothing we can do to be uncovered by the blood or unchosen by God. God adopted us and then gifted us with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit renews us, it reveals things to us, it convicts us of our sin, gives us a source of wisdom, it guides us to truth, it intercedes for us, and it allows us to bear fruit. The Holy Spirit connects us to God and we become his children, in which we should cry, Abba, Father. Now this term, Abba, Father, is only used three times in the Bible. Mark 14, 36, when Jesus fell on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you, not what I will, but what you will. The second instance is this verse, Romans 8, 15. And the third is Galatians 4, 6, when Paul writes a letter to the church of Galatia saying, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, Abba means father in Hebrew. Paul and Jesus are the only two people recorded in the Bible who have said this. This term implies a personal and intimate relationship. Jesus called upon his father in this way, and we should strive to have that kind of relationship with God. After all, Jesus came to show us how to love. While Jesus is the one who said it, Paul wrote it in his letters. Paul's the one who gives us the invitation to call him that. We are adopted into God's family, so naturally he desires a deep relationship with us, to call him Abba Father, as an intimate call upon our Father. God doesn't desire a half relationship with us, where we just ask him for things or call upon him when we need him, which is my tendency. He wants us to praise him and thank him during the good parts of life, but also seek guidance and ask for help um, during the not so good parts of life. He wants to be there for the good, the bad, and the ugly. See, I grew up in a house of three girls, and I was blessed with the position of the middle kid. I was the strong-willed, sort of rebellious one. (laughs) I was the kid who never wanted to do anything, and no one could make me. (laughs) If someone came up to me and asked, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would it be? I would always say, my bed. (laughs) The only person that could make me do things was my dad. I know you guys were expecting me to say my mom and how she pushed me to get on out there and, you know, but sorry. It's Mother's Day and I'm telling a story about my dad. My dad, though, would make me do things because he knew it was best for me. So he forced me to play upward basketball. (laughs) Playing this highly aggressive sport, 
was probably my least favorite thing to do. I would cry before every game just because I didn't want to go. Not only did I hate it because I had to run, I hated it because I wasn't very good. I had the potential, but I just didn't try out of spite because I never wanted to play in the first place. So why would I try? You know? This one season, I was playing at Burn Hickory, and um, I went all season without making a basket. There was one game, all it takes is one game, and I got the ball long enough to shoot, so I shot, and I scored. <laughs> I remember jumping up and down on the court with excitement and squealing like one does during a girls' basketball game. My dad is a big basketball guy, and I remember him cheering for me in the stands. I remember my mom's iconic woohoos while holding up the camera, which, yes, there is a video of this. My dad, though, celebrated my success with me. In that very short moment, short moment, I secretly thanked my dad for putting me in basketball. Temporary gratification, though. I don't even remember if we won the game, but it didn't matter, because I scored. He was also there when I failed game after game and never made a basket. He coached me on our basketball goal in our driveway, how to get open, how to dribble, you know, basketball stuff. But he was there for it all. You know, just like my mom, though, you know. See what I did there, it's Mother's Day. Couldn't leave her out, completely. The point of that story was to prove that God, that as God's children, we should include him on every aspect of our lives. He desires for us to call him Abba Father and to have that intimate relationship with him during the celebrations and the trials. He is our heavenly father and just wants to be involved. He just wants us. Romans 8:16 says the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The word testifies means to confirm, to serve as evidence. So let me reread this. The spirit himself serves as evidence to our spirit that we are God's children. Our last name serves as evidence to what family we belong to. People know us by our last name and therefore know who we are because of that name. Likewise, God gives us a name and calls us into his family. The Holy Spirit is living proof of our adoption because when I poured out my heart to the Lord and asked him to have authority over my life, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. When we're born, our, our parents give us that last name, so we have no reason to doubt who we are, but most importantly, whose we are. So let us choose to live in this mindset, a mindset of life, of freedom, and of a child of God. Let's turn our attention to Ephesians 5.8 as Janelle closes us out. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Check them on. There we go. I'm Janelle Reese, and I've been going to Sanctuary since the eighth grade. I grew up in church, and yet this is the first church that I could actually call home. So thank you for being that for me. I am, my family's already big. I'm the youngest of ten. Yep, that's right. So make sure to wish my mom an extra happy Mother's Day this morning. But despite that big family, I'm so glad to be a part of an even bigger family with you all as siblings and God as our Father. Like Abby said, we have been adopted by God, which makes us children of the Most High God. Can we let that sink in? How crazy is that? But Romans 8:17 says that if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
which means Christ's inheritance is ours as well. The glory of the kingdom of heaven is ours to partake in. How the world was supposed to be without mourning or dying or crying or pain, that is our inheritance. Not because anything we have done, but because of God's love and mercy on us, he has gifted us that inheritance. He has given us the choice to choose him. And it is a choice. Verse 17 goes on to say, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, when I was preparing for this Sunday, I realized that my prior understanding of Jesus did not align with what the Bible was saying. I realized that for a long time, I'd seen Jesus as a get-out-of-jail-free card, and that because the work he did on the cross, I had nothing left to do. And that is true for salvation. But I realize now I can't cruise through this life and then expect to reap all the benefits that Jesus talked about. God invites all of us to be involved in the great work that he is doing. That invitation, that adoption, is not based on anything we have done or can do, but we have to choose. The original Greek word for suffering in verse 17 is sympasko, which means to experience pain jointly. When met with God's invitation, there are two choices. Say yes and suffer jointly with Christ, or say no and miss out on the glory of Christ's inheritance. So if your answer is yes, then what does that look like? What does it mean to suffer with Christ? In America, we don't have people stoning us or breaking into our houses because we own Bibles, but they're still suffering. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, Jesus tells his disciples to remember that the world hated him first. The only reason the world hates us is because we belong to him and not the world. He warns us that in our acceptance of airship, there will be hard times. So what does that look like for you and for me? Let's take a look at how Jesus responded to hate. He blessed those who hated him, forgave those who hated him. Everything he did sprang from the love he had for those who hated him. Now let's take a look at how the world responds to hate. The world would respond to hate with more hate. If someone cuts you down, then cut them down even more. If someone's bothering you, then cut them out. You don't need that negativity in your life. How would you respond? Who do you belong to? If we are children of God and co-heirs with Christ, then as Christ responded to suffering, so shall we. But why? What's the point of all this? Most of my life, I have been the friend to reach out, the one to text or to make plans. In those relationships where I met with rejection and apathy and silence, I have felt the most pain. One night, while I was mourning a friendship that I was fighting to keep alive, I cried out to the Lord. I said, 
Why am I still reaching out to this person? They haven't shown me an ounce of love that I have shown them. I am constantly met with silence and half-hearted apologies. And in those tears, the Holy Spirit met me. In him, I saw the same pain. And in that moment of connection, I realized that he understood. He felt the same pain. He had felt the rejection of every human he had died to save and wept bitterly over every single one. That moment of understanding joined us. It's understanding each other's pain. It connected us. And isn't that God's desire? Emmanuel, God with us. That brings us to our final point. We suffer in order that we may be glorified with Christ. So how is Christ glorified? The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His reward, his inheritance, was the restoration of his place near God. So, if we are co-heirs with Christ, sharing his inheritance, then the reward of loving and suffering like Jesus is loving and being loved by God the Father, completely whole in our relationship with him. This is what we can look forward to once we've reached the finish line of the race we're running. And yet, even as we live, Christ overcame sin and death. He teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. As Leah said, we miss the mark. Sin gets in the way. So we have to daily surrender that sin like Carly talked about. How can we stay stuck in the sin of this world when the king of kings calls us sons and daughters? Like Abby said, God's inviting you into his family. No longer must we suffer alone. Cry out to him, Abba, Father, and the spirit that brought about your adoption will answer you. When met with rejection, I had the choice to give up on that relationship. But in all the times I have rejected God, he never gave up on pursuing a relationship with me. Because of Christ, I can choose to love in the midst of suffering. Because of Christ, you can choose to forgive the person who wronged you. Don't run from suffering, but invite the Holy Spirit into it, into your hurt. I'm confident that he will guide you how to love. The Holy Spirit will guide you. As we continue our series in Romans 8, this is the victory transition where we move from the hold that sin has on us to trusting and believing in the adoption, freedom, and invitation to the family God offers us. Let's pray as we close in worship this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together to worship you and to learn about you and to join in community. I just pray over every single person in this room, 
Lord, that their hearts would be softened, their eyes would be opened to see your truth, and their ears would be open to hear and receive this invitation that you are giving. Lord, I pray that these hearts would be changed. Lord, that my heart would be changed to look not more like the traditions that we follow or the expectations that we set or that others set upon us, but that our hearts would be changed to look more and more like you and to act more and more in the way that your word instructs us. So Lord, I just pray as we're going out into the world after church, out into this work week, Lord, that you would be transforming us more and more by the renewal of our mind to be more like you, to love like you, to suffer like you, and to be glorified with you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.